I work with primarily Latino students and many of them have said, these kids look like me. This could have been me or this could have been my family or this could have been us. Latino communities have been hit particularly hard in the days following the Uvalde shooting. It's Friday, June 3rd, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, how Latinos are coping in the aftermath of the Texas school shooting. Also this hour, a conversation with the White House COVID-19 coordinator about the latest guidance on children under five getting the vaccine. And how in a post-Roe versus Wade world, Americans of childbearing age should prepare for less access to legal abortion. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Another solid month for U.S. job growth. The Labor Department revealing today that in May, the economy gained 390,000 jobs and the unemployment rate still at a low of 3.6 percent. President Biden applauded the creation of more jobs but warned Americans against expecting blockbuster job reports month after month as the U.S. had seen over this past year. He says moderation's a good thing, a sign of a healthy economy. All while warnings of a recession grow louder. Today, Reuters reported that Tesla CEO Elon Musk sent an email to executives saying he had a, quote, super bad feeling about the economy and that the electric car company needs to cut about 10 percent of salaried staff. President Biden offered a rebuttal to the SpaceX founder's gloomy outlook by noting other major companies such as Ford are actually expanding. Former Chrysler Corporation, Stellantis, they are also making similar investments in electric vehicles. Intel is adding 20,000 new jobs for making computer chips. Um, So, uh, you know, lots of luck on this trip to the moon. Food and Drug Administration scientists say a different COVID-19 vaccine appears to be highly effective, which could set the stage for the vaccine to win emergency authorization. Here's NPR's Rob Stein. The FDA scientists say a study involving about 30,000 volunteers showed that the vaccine, made by a company called Novavax, is about 90% effective at preventing mild, moderate, or severe COVID-19. The assessment comes in advance of a meeting of FDA advisors next Tuesday to consider recommending the FDA authorize the vaccine. Novavax may also be useful as a booster. One key question is how well the Novavax vaccine works against the Omicron variant, which wasn't circulating during the study. The FDA scientists also say they are concerned about a possible link to a rare heart inflammation. Rob Stein, NPR News. In the wake of recent mass shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo, several schools in Maine witnessed a student walkout today. About 200 students gathered outside Republican Senator Susan Collins' office in Portland to demand a ban on assault-style weapons. Maine Public Radio's Patty White has more. Students chanted as they marched through city streets before arriving outside Senator Collins' office. Cape Elizabeth High School junior Stella Crawford, who spearheaded the protest, read a letter to Collins out loud. We want to learn and live without fear. We demand that you advocate for the children of your state rather than your donors and your party. Sincerely, concerned students of your state. A spokesperson for Collins issued a statement that the senator has been meeting with a bipartisan group of lawmakers who are making rapid progress toward a common-sense package on gun safety legislation. For NPR News, I'm Patty White in Portland, Maine. 
The Dow closes down more than 1%. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The shooting deaths of four people at a Tulsa medical building this week are stirring fears for health care workers here in Massachusetts. They're also bringing up painful memories at Brigham and Women's Hospital. That's where a man shot and killed a cardiac surgeon back in 2015. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey has more. Nurse Trish Powers was on duty the day a gunman shot Dr. Michael Davidson. The man was apparently upset about his mother's surgery. Powers says the Tulsa shooting is just so horrible and upsetting and hits home for us. The Brigham has recently been the target of anti-vaccine threats and white supremacists. Workers like Powers are on edge. If someone really wants to do harm, they're going to do it. And I hope that we can find a way that we can feel safer for everyone. The hospital says it has improved security to keep patients and staff safe. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale McCluskey. Gasoline price records continue to be broken here in Massachusetts. Regular unleaded now costs four eighty-five a gallon on average in the state. AAA Northeast says that's up a six-cent jump from yesterday's record-setting price, and it's the third straight day a record was set. A Boston businessman and former state representative known as a lifelong champion for individuals and disabilities has been tapped by the Biden administration for a new role. The White House recently named James Brett as the chair of the President's Committee for People with Intellectual Disabilities. The advisory committee promotes policies and initiatives that support the independence of people with intellectual disabilities. Brett is president of the Business Association, the New England Council. Celtics fans will have another chance to watch the NBA Finals outdoors in public. The city of Boston announced today it will host another viewing party Sunday night at Fanel Hall for Game 2 of the Finals. Game 2 is on the road against the Golden State Warriors in San Francisco. Now the sports news, Red Sox are in California tonight to take on the Oakland A's. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight, chance of showers, lows around 56 degrees. Cloudy early tomorrow, becoming mostly sunny. Chance of showers in the late afternoon, the highs around 73. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Well, after a long wait, COVID-19 vaccines could finally be available really soon for very young children. We're talking about kids under five years old. Dr. Ashish Jha, the White House COVID-19 response coordinator, delivered these words yesterday. We expect that vaccinations will begin in earnest as early as Tuesday, June 21st, and really roll on throughout that week. It is news that some parents around the country have been waiting for for what seems like forever. So we have brought Dr. Jaw back to the show to talk about this announcement and answer some questions about the vaccination plan going forward. Welcome. Thank you for having me back. Okay, so even though parents of this age group have been waiting so long for a vaccine, I want to ask you, if we look at the next age group up, that's 5 to 11-year-olds. Vaccination was authorized for them six months ago, and only about 30 percent of that age group is fully vaccinated. Do you have any reason to believe the vaccination rate will be any better for these younger children? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think we have to continue to do a, a better job of explaining why vaccines are such an important way 
of protecting children. Um, there's a lot of misinformation out there about kids and COVID. And, you know, we have to counter that. And we have to help parents understand that if you want to protect your children moving forward, vaccines represent the best way to do it. Right. But do you feel the administration has failed somewhat with the 5 to 11 age group in getting them vaccinated more fully? No, I think, look, the administration has made these vaccines widely available. I think we have worked with pediatricians and family practitioners, and we've got to do more of that. We've got to keep going. Um, we've got to help parents understand that that uh, if in this pandemic, the pandemic is not over. The COVID is still out there. We're mm -hmm. going to see other variants. And we want to protect children, and the best way to do it is through vaccines. And what is the plan, then, to improve the vaccination rate among not just 5 to 11-year-olds, but also among these younger kids as well? At the end of the day, you know, I'm a parent, and I, when I think about decisions I make for my kids, I am really guided and shaped by my pediatrician or my kid's pediatrician or family practitioner. So one important part of the plan certainly is to work with trusted medical providers. And the American Academy of Pediatrics has been very strong and very clear on this. Uh, I think getting more information out to pediatricians and family practitioners and helping them communicate directly to parents, I think, will also make a really important difference. I am curious, though, do you see these lower vaccination rates among children as it's an issue of mistrust in the vaccines? Or is it more about parents making an informed, deliberate choice? Because data does show that these vaccines provide only modest protection for kids. What do you think the issue here is? I think there are a couple of things. One is from the beginning of this pandemic, we have seen a downplaying of COVID in kids, right? You've heard over and over again that somehow COVID is not a big deal. And the way that that has been set up is by saying it's less risky than it is for elderly people. Well, that's always true. Every disease is lower risk for children uh, than it is for the elderly. The real question is, how does COVID compare to other risks children face? And COVID is a real challenge. And what we know is that the vaccines provide terrific protection against severe ailments for kids as well as adults. And I think we have to make that help parents understand that. And I think as we make that case, I think more parents will choose to get their kids vaccinated. Do you think the delay in making the vaccine available for these youngest kids has has affected the course of the pandemic in a significant way in this country? What do you think the impact has been? Well, it's certainly for the parents of kids under five. Um, it's been an incredibly frustrating period. And I have a lot of friends with kids under five. Uh, they have been, I think, frustrated by the delay. Um, but the, it isn't the, the issue is that when you think about kids under five, you've got to get the right dosing. You can't just use an adult dose. Um, you know, obviously, these are smaller humans, and so we want to get the dosing right. You want to make sure that it's safe and effective in this population. And that has all taken time. And I think the companies have worked quickly. I think the FDA has worked quickly. Um, but at the end of the day, we've always wanted to get it right. We thought that was the most important thing. Right. Well, I want to talk about your job in particular because, you know, in many ways, it feels like this to me, it feels like this to my friends, my colleagues, that people all over the U.S. are, are just sort of moving on right now, like either pretending the pandemic is over or simply deciding for themselves that the risk of infection is acceptable. And I'm wondering, does that shifting mindset now, does it make your job harder these days? Does it make it harder to get the message across from the White House that we still need to care about COVID? Well, the way I look at it is that the goal was always 
to make COVID less disruptive, to make COVID less harmful to the American people. And we've made an incredible amount of progress on that. So I think that's a good thing, by the way. So that's not a problem. That's a good thing. And the way we've done it is by making sure that, you know, the vaccines are widely available. Two thirds of Americans are now fully vaccinated. A third are boosted. We've done a lot to make treatments available. The fact that COVID creates less fear is a good thing. That's always been a goal. Now, we still have a messaging challenge, which is we have to help people understand that COVID is not over doesn't mean that it needs to rule our lives the way it did a year ago, but that we need to still take precautions, still make sure we have plenty of vaccines and treatments, continue to do the things that we know will protect Americans. That's still on the agenda. That is Dr. Ashish Jha, White House COVID-19 response coordinator. Thank you very much for joining us again today. Thank you for having me back. It has been 10 days since the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and while the entire nation is reeling, for a certain group of people it is hitting particularly hard. For Latinos, seeing the names, the photos of the victims, kids and teachers who look and sound like them, it's added a layer of grief and trauma. To talk through this, we have called Maria Maldonado Morales. She's a clinical social worker at Texas Children's Hospital. Hey there, welcome. Thank you so much. It goes without saying that there's a whole range of views and experiences uh, among Latinos across this country. So I guess start with just what you personally are hearing um, in your circles from your patients about how this particular shooting is affecting them. I'm seeing a lot of complicated grief. I think to your point, it's not only the loss of life, the loss of safety, but I think the community that we feel as sort of Latinos in the United States adds a layer of frustration, of sadness, of anger even. And my colleagues who are also Latino or my family who is also Latino, like you said, seeing the faces of the children and seeing your nieces and nephews, your kids. And I also see that with the clients that I see, I work with primarily Latino students. Mm -hmm. And many of them have said just that of these kids look like me, this could have been me or this could have been my my family or this could have been us. Yeah. This is not the first horrific shooting uh, to affect Latinos, uh, not Mm -hmm. even the first in Texas. So we Mm -hmm. we don't know the motive in Uvalde. We do know that um, El Paso back in 2019 was racially motivated. Yes. Um, Just to remind people, that was a gunman who walked into a Walmart and killed 23 people and was targeting Mexican-Americans. Does that add to the weight of this latest horror? Does it contribute to I don't know, a a sense of a particular community under attack. I think it does. You know, I think especially to your point in this instance, because the the motive of the attack wasn't clear, I think that adds an additional layer of maybe uncertainty or fear because the shooter was also Latino. And so I think it adds this sort of almost level of mistrust of we're supposed to be a community, we're supposed to watch out for each other, and how can we hurt each other like this? So what advice are you giving to people who are who are grappling with this? Something that I've been telling people a lot is to have really honest, open conversations in, in many communities, but I think particularly in Latino communities, there is this maybe fear of having 
difficult emotional conversations because often parents don't want to seem weak or vulnerable in front of their children. Children don't want to seem weak or vulnerable in front of their parents. Everyone is trying to be strong and brave, but that sometimes brings in shame and guilt and it can also create feelings of isolation. So I'm encouraging people to speak openly about their feelings, to share what they're feeling with each other and have these open conversations because it is uncomfortable. It isn't easy to talk about, but we're all thinking about it. We're all feeling it. What about something that may speak um, to almost everyone in America right now, which is a craving for a sense of safety, a safe place? How do you talk to people about that? How do you talk to people about coping? I think something that I recommend to people, which obviously is easier said than done, is to try and create as much of a sense of normalcy in this very uncertain world. So how do you do that? That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, if you have family routines, for example, of having dinner together or reading a book before bedtime um, and maybe also doing things that maybe seem um, fun, which also sounds odd because often when we feel so sad, we feel like, well, I shouldn't be enjoying things. I shouldn't have fun. I shouldn't experience joy. But we can hold both of those feelings together. We can feel scared and sad and also feel joy and hope. And I think that, again, allows a sense of normalcy in in our day-to-day life. It's not going to take it away. It's not going to make it all, you know, disappear. But for a second, we can feel a sense of normalcy. Good advice there from Maria Maldonado Morales, clinical social worker at Texas Children's Hospital. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Ahead on All Things Considered, in a post-Roe world, how should Americans of childbearing age prepare for less access to legal abortion? That's just ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. In business news, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court has ruled that there are limits to the restrictions that municipalities can place on solar projects. The case involves a solar project in Lexington that needs an access road in Waltham. Waltham's building inspector claimed the road would violate the city's zoning code, limiting large-scale solar projects to industrial zones. The state Supreme Judicial Court ruled that communities can reasonably restrict solar systems, but limiting them to small portions of a town or city violates state law that promotes solar energy. Wall Street stocks were lower. The Dow down about 1% or 349 points to close at 32,900. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Summer Term at Boston University, offering convenient day, evening, and online scheduling with courses open to working professionals and lifelong learners. Study education, communication, business, project management, computer science, the arts, film and TV, languages, literature, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. 
You know, you're part of the WBUR community, and that's why you are invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's this coming Tuesday, June 7th at 8.30 a.m. You can find details at WBUR.org slash open meetings. Forecast mostly cloudy tonight. Chances some showers. The lows will be around 56. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. So what now? That's the question that's buzzing within reproductive health communities. In particular, how should those Americans of childbearing age prepare now if Roe is overturned by the Supreme Court? Well, joining us now are two people who have thought a lot about this. Robin Marty, who's the operations director for the West Alabama Women's Center and the author of Handbook for a Post-Row America. And we have with us Dr. Reagan McDonald-Mosley. She's a practicing OBGYN and the CEO of Power to Decide, a sexual health and planning nonprofit group. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having me. Robin, I mean, you are in this state, like half of all U.S. states, that would make abortion illegal immediately. You're in Alabama. Can you just walk us through specifically what that would entail? So I want to explain really quickly that although half of the states are likely to have no access to legal abortion, there are very few states, even those with triggers, that will immediately be impacted by the ruling. A time period before something will go immediately into effect. For us, that's not the case. And that means that we have to be sure that if we have patients who are in for care, they will be in the waiting room. And we have to make sure that we have them in either beginning the dilation process or already taking their pills before a decision comes down, which for us would be at 9 a.m. We usually have our patients in at 8, but we're moving our patients in even earlier on any day that could potentially be a decision day just to make sure that we can care for as many as possible before we can't anymore. Well, I want to talk about what people should be thinking about and doing right now, because these abortion restrictions mean that some people are going to be looking for ways to make sure that they don't have an unintended pregnancy now. And Reagan, as a doctor, just tell us what kind of contraception would you recommend? And let me just sort of preface this also by saying I welcome any opportunity to talk about reproductive health and birth control. But I have to admit that the premise of this question, that abortion access will be so hard to obtain in over half the states in our country, that that just within and of itself feels very dystopian and troubling. There are definitely some methods that, you know, have lower failure rates and sort of, you know, the real world use. Um, so there is permanent birth control, both the tubal ligation as well as vasectomy, um, depending on someone's anatomy. So those are permanent methods that, that should only be used if someone knows that they don't want to have any more children and those are more than 99% effective. There are also implants, contraceptive implants and IUDs, both hormonal and non-hormonal that are also 99% effective. Um, but those methods might not be for everyone. So all of the other methods you know, should be available to them, including the contraceptive pill, the patch, the ring, the injectable contraception, which are also still very effective, over 90% effective. 
But again, you know, it's a really great opportunity to sort of learn about all of these methods, the side effects, and then choose what, what method, you know, is right for you. And when it comes to emergency contraception, like Plan B or something like that, can we just remind people how long they have to take it for something like Plan B to still be effective? Emergency contraception, whether or not it's a pill or an intrauterine device, should be taken within five days of unprotected intercourse. And as you know, it can be hard to sort of get a provider visit and get the pills and fill the prescription within five days. And so one thing to consider is advanced provision before you need it, before you have unprotected intercourse, just to have it in your medicine cabinet. Okay, I have been hearing recommendations about stocking up on Plan B or other emergency contraception, but you do think that that's a good thing to do? Like, is there anything people need to know in terms of shelf life or expiration? So there are two different types of the pill version of emergency contraception. One, you just mentioned people sort of often refer to as Plan B. It's available over the counter, so folks can just go into the drugstore today and pick up a couple of packs if they want. And it generally has a very long shelf life in the order of three to four years, meaning Ah. someone could buy it now and may not have to use it for a year and it's still active and good. But you should look at the expiration date on this specific box of the product that you're going to buy, meaning, Mm -hmm. you know, if a product's going to expire next month, you want to choose one that's on the box is going to expire in a year or two. Let's say someone takes a pregnancy test in a state that does ban abortion and that test comes out positive. Let's talk about this scenario now. So Robin, what options do these people have if they want to end their pregnancy in that state? So there are a number of different options that a person can undergo. Um, Some of them involve trying to decide to go to a clinic outside of their state. There are abortion funds and practical support groups that can help provide financial assistance, um, logistical support. But also what we're seeing is that most people especially in the South, they have an immense amount of difficulty to be able to afford all of the bus tickets, plane tickets, times off of work. Um, That's simply not going to be doable for a lot of them. Yeah. Well, Reagan, from an OBGYN's perspective, if I am looking for a clinic where I live or near where I live, maybe even in a neighboring state, what should I be looking for? So the first thing is, you know, to identify where you can go. Um, And so we have a resource at Power to Decide called abortionfinder.org. There's another resource called I Need an A. And these um, have databases of reliable abortion clinics throughout the country. I agree with everything Reagan said. I would also like to say that reaching out to a local independent abortion clinic just to ask questions is definitely a thing that can be done. Abortion clinics are always going to be aware of what's going on in their region. And as much as online sources are amazing, they are so hard to keep to the minute up to date. And so, I mean, if you have a question, just ask. That's what we're here for. And Robin, I mean, we are hearing that in many states that would ban abortion. They are more interested in punishing providers rather than the patients seeking abortions. So how honest or direct should a patient be when talking to a doctor about the option of an abortion or treatment after they have tried an abortion? Right. I actually put together a checklist of questions that people can ask their doctors. So it's a checklist that a person can go through and say, how do you feel about abortion? If I asked for an abortion, would you make a referral? It's an entire list of things that, frankly, doctors have to be vetted for at this point because there are states where you cannot sue a doctor if they withhold information from you about your pregnancy. 
So we've already seen how abortion laws have completely undermined the doctor-patient relationship, and that's only going to get worse once it's doctors and patients who could potentially end up in jail. Elsa, this is Reagan. I just wanted to chime in from a medical perspective and point out, realizing that someone may not have the opportunity to fully vet a provider, it's important to realize that if someone is having you know, a prolonged bleeding or may need medical attention after having a medication abortion with medications that they obtained themselves or with the care of a provider, that that very much looks like a miscarriage, right? And so someone can potentially, you know, present to an emergency room and to their provider and say, I'm having cramping and bleeding and, and I had a positive pregnancy test and receive the care that they need without having to reveal that they have taken abortion medications. That was Dr. Reagan McDonald-Mosley. She is a practicing OBGYN and the CEO of Power to Decide, a sexual health and planning nonprofit. We also had Robin Marty. She's the operations director of the West Alabama Women's Center, and she is the author of Handbook for a Post-Row America. Thank you both so much for spending all this time with us. Of course, anytime. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 64 degrees in Boston at 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear from the Canadian Minister of Public Safety about a bill that would place a national freeze on handgun ownership across Canada. That's just ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Historic New England, launching its spring and summer season with a region-wide open house on June 4th. Explore more than 30 historic sites and more than 1,000 acres of outdoor space. Details at historicnewengland.org. Funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism. And Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with their part-time MBA. Apply by June 24th for scholarship consideration. Babson.edu slash part-time. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. U.S. employers continued to add jobs at a rapid pace in May. NPR Scott Horsley reports on the latest employment snapshot released today from the Labor Department. U.S. employers added 390,000 jobs last month as the unemployment rate held steady at a low 3.6 percent. Job gains have downshifted somewhat along with the supply of available workers. The U.S. has now replaced more than 96 percent of the jobs that were lost during the pandemic. Future job growth will depend in part on how many more people join or rejoin the workforce. Stiff competition for workers has been pushing up wages. Average wages last month were up 5.2 percent from a year ago. Wage gains have moderated in recent months, but inflation watchdogs at the Federal Reserve are still nervous that a hot job market will continue to push prices higher. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. 
President Biden is touting the latest jobs report, saying the U.S. can attack inflation from a position of strength. Biden also acknowledged that American families continue to struggle to keep up with rising prices. I know that even with today's good news, a lot of Americans remain anxious, and I understand the feeling. I grew up in a family about uh, 100 miles from here that if where the price of gas went up, you felt it. It was a discussion at the kitchen table. And there's no denying that high prices, particularly around gasoline and food, are a real problem for people. But there's every reason for the American people to feel confident that will meet these challenges. The Federal Reserve is working to reduce the pressure on inflation through a series of interest rate hikes. Stocks on Wall Street closed lower today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 348 points. The Nasdaq fell 304. The S&P lost 68. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Advocates for stronger federal gun laws are taking their case for action to a Springfield gunmaker. Today, a group, including Senator Ed Markey, rallied outside a Smith & Wesson facility where AR-15 rifles are made. John Rosenthal, with the group Stop Handgun Violence, said the nation should adopt gun laws like Massachusetts. He says this state treats guns and cars alike with requirements for training and licensing. If every state simply treated guns like cars like Massachusetts, and had the same low gun death rate as Massachusetts, 27,000 lives would be saved a year. Smith & Wesson has not responded to a WBUR request for comment. Massachusetts Democrats are kicking off their two-day convention in Worcester tonight. The event will determine which Democratic candidates get on the primary ballot in September for statewide offices. A candidate must win support of at least 15 percent of the delegates at the convention to appear on the ballot. Offices that are contested include governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, secretary of state, and state auditor. A contractor from western Massachusetts is accused of bilking customers out of more than $400,000. Prosecutors say Fred Center of Pittsfield took down payments for more than 40 projects to build steel structures even after he dissolved his company. He's accused of failing to complete the projects and cutting off communications with customers. Berkshire District Attorney Andrea Harrington says Center had no intention of completing the work. The alleged victims are private individuals. There's Richmond Fire Department, nonprofits, businesses. There's a church, multiple victims, over 40 in five different states. Center pleaded not guilty at his arraignment today. His attorney says his client maintains his innocence. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Cultural Council, committed to supporting a diverse, inclusive, and an anti-racist cultural sector in the Commonwealth. Through their racial equity plan and grant-making, Mass Cultural Council is working to better serve artists and organizations. Learn about their grants and services and the power of culture at massculturalcouncil.org. Sports, the Red Sox are in California to take on the A's tonight out in Oakland. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight, chance of showers, the lows will be around 56 degrees. Cloudy early tomorrow, becoming mostly sunny, chance of some showers in the late afternoon, the highs around 73. Sunshine on Sunday, high 73 degrees. Monday should be mostly sunny as well, the high will be around 72. Right now, it is 64 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, 
Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington, where President Biden addressed the nation from the White House last night and begged Congress to act on guns. Let's meet the moment. Let us finally do something. Contrast that to what is happening north of the border. Canada's government introduced a bill on Monday that would freeze the sale or purchase of handguns and create new red flag laws. Well, I reached Canada's Minister of Public Safety, Marco Mendicino, in Ottawa today. He told me this would be his country's strongest gun reform legislation in a generation. The situation is urgent. Last week, Statistics Canada issued a report saying that the trends are all going in the wrong direction, that gun violence is up, handgun violence specifically is up, and that domestic violence in connection with guns is up. And when you combine that with the numerous mass shootings that we've had over the last number of years, including most recently the port pick shooting in Nova Scotia, there's a real imperative to act. To what extent is what's happening in the U.S. influencing your thinking? I know when uh, when Prime Minister Trudeau announced this on Monday, he said, and I'll quote, we need only look south of the border to know that if we do not take action firmly and rapidly, it gets worse and worse and more difficult to counter. I heard that and wondered, what, what do Canadians see when you look south? How do you understand what's happening here in the U.S.? The people-to-people ties between Canada and the United States are so deep and long and important to us. There's no doubt that we feel for our friends in the United States, for the communities in Buffalo, New York, Uvalde, Texas, and it's a tough moment. And we're right there with you. We want to support you. Yeah. And to be clear, this is a Canadian proposal to address a situation in Canada. This was not prompted by the horrors of Buffalo and Uvalde in the last couple of weeks here. No, that's right. This is a piece of legislation that is born out of our own challenges. So this is about protecting Canadians. How meaningful can a Canadian ban be? You will continue to have a 5,000-mile border with the U.S. uh, where guns will remain way more widely available. And that's why the bill also puts into place some provisions that will take on organized crime very directly. I talked about raising maximum sentences for illegal gun traffickers. That's aimed to denounce and deter those who would try to take guns illegally from the United States into Canada. Reinvigorate the cross-border crime forum where we can share intelligence and technology on both sides of the border. And then lastly, we're just adding more resources to our law enforcement at the border, more technology to stop illegal trafficking. What does that mean? Like more searches if you're crossing the border in from the U.S.? It means better searches, yes. Last year, we made a record number of seizures of illegal firearms, but there's still a long way to go. Will it be enough? Well, that is the central question. And by itself, the honest answer is C-21. Our new legislation cannot offer a foolproof guarantee, which is why it has to be part of a comprehensive strategy that I think does three things. One, 
continuing to advance smart, strong, effective gun policy like this new legislation, two, continuing to invest in law enforcement at our border, in our communities, and three, we also have to get at the root causes of gun crime, which means looking very carefully at social determinants like access to safe and affordable housing, access to healthcare, access to safe schooling. When you send your kid to school, we got to feel safe. Last thing, you'll you will know well that in the U.S., uh, the debate over how to stop gun violence, particularly in schools, is a range from measures to control guns to a lot of Republicans saying that's not the answer. We need to look at mental health initiatives. We need to look at hardening schools. We need to look at arming teachers. Does any of that resonate in Canada? Does it resonate for you? There are some distinctions. I mean, in your country there is a constitutional right to bear arms. In Canada, there is no such constitutional right. And we believe that in order to get at the problem, you've got to do all of these things, put in place smart laws, make sure that you're supporting law enforcement, but I think also getting at the root causes so that you don't have to arm teachers, so that you don't have to arm everybody to ensure public safety. And that's ultimately the destination that I think we all want to go. Marco Mendicino, thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Mary Louise. He is Canada's Minister of Public Safety. We reached him today in Ottawa. Some of the heaviest fighting in Ukraine's war with Russia right now is in the eastern Donbass region. That's where Russian troops are slowly gaining ground. And yet, in cities and towns that lie in the path of the onslaught, people are still weeding flower beds in public parks. Street sweepers are still at work. And one man has found solace tending to his pigeons. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports. It was in a small yard tucked among Soviet-era apartment blocks that had seen better days that we happened upon Vladimir Ivanovich Kovalov. He'd just gotten off work, he drives a bus overnight shuttling miners to and from the local coal mine, and his first stop after work on this sunny morning was here, to tend to his flock of pigeons. I've had pigeons since 1968, when I was in the third grade. That's when my mother bought me a couple of them for five rubles. And since that day, 54 years ago, he's kept pigeons. Everybody has their own hobbies. Some people play cards, some people like to fish, other people like women or booze. Me, I like pigeons. He says it gives him great joy to take care of these birds. And you can see it on his face, how often he breaks into a gold-toothed smile just talking about them. He doesn't know exactly how many pigeons he has. I guess there are about 80 of them, but even so, he says he can recognize each and every one of them. I know which is which by their faces. I know their grandmas and grandpas, their fathers and mothers. If I turn around and you take one and walk away, I can turn back around and know exactly which one you took. These birds flapping their wings and bobbing their heads and cooing in the little dirt yard are the kind that don't fly away, he says. These are the kind that stay close to home. And so he nabs two of them to show us. So he's got one in each hand, a black and white bird in each hand, and he's walking over to the other side of the yard here. And he just threw one up in the air. Just threw both of them up in the air. And they're flapping up in the air. These black and white birds. <laughs> and here they come and land. Look at that. And the two birds landed right back down in the dirt yard. 
And maybe there's something of these pigeons in Kovalov as well, because he's the kind that stays close to home too. He says he doesn't plan to leave Pokrovsk, even as the ferocious fighting between Ukrainian and Russian forces inches closer. That doesn't mean he's not worried. He is. He says a missile could wipe this all out in an instant. But what will he do if the Russians come here to Pokrovsk and his birds? He won't venture far. He says he might take his pigeons to a nearby village. There's a garage. I was thinking about moving all of my birds there. I'll leave my job and I'll go sit there with them. But then he shrugs. If your time is up, then your time is up, he says. And if it's not, then we keep on living. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Pokrovsk, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. For many American Jews, seeing a female rabbi is a part of life. So it's remarkable that the first American woman was ordained as a rabbi just 50 years ago. Dina Pritchep reports on how this groundbreaking ordination changed the role of women and the course of Judaism in America. Even when she was enrolled in seminary at Cincinnati's Hebrew Union College, Sally Presand knew that a lot of people did not want to see her ordained. There would always come a time where some person would come up to me and tell me why women shouldn't be rabbis. And I would say, thank you for sharing your opinion, and I would walk away. Presand sees herself as a relatively private person, but she became hugely public when she was ordained in 1972. It was the work she felt called to do. I became a rabbi because I wanted to be a rabbi. And I discovered that when you're the first of something, there are extra responsibilities that come along with that. While Presand was the first American woman to become a rabbi, she was not the first to try. Pamela Nadell directs the Jewish Studies program at American University and has written about the fight for women's ordination. There is nothing in Jewish law that prohibits women from becoming a rabbi. So their argument is it's only custom. And customs change. They're saying Judaism has made other accommodations to the modern world. Why not make this accommodation as well? Nadel says campaigns for female clergy have gone hand in hand with political and social changes. In the 1920s, on the heels of suffrage. In 1930s Germany, when Regina Jonas was privately ordained. She died in the Holocaust and her story was lost for years. And 50 years ago, at the height of second-wave feminism. It was impossible, in a sense, to be questioning everything about women's roles in society and not also be looking at one's religious tradition. Judith Plasco is Professor Emerita of Religious Studies at Manhattan College and a Jewish feminist theologian. She says this was the time of consciousness-raising groups, of national marches, of women demanding entry into all parts of life. It was totally amazing. I mean, it felt like everything was breaking open. In the space of just a few years, centuries of tradition transformed across religions, and those that didn't started to seem out of step. And historian Pamela Nadell says these women changed Jewish life. They invented a host of ceremonies and rituals to mark the events of women's lives that the male rabbis had never considered essential. 
the first baby girl naming ceremonies, ceremonies to mark events like miscarriage. In 1972, Sally Presand was not looking to transform Jewish life. She had a hard enough time just getting hired to do the job she loved. But she started something. I did open doors, but I also held the doors open for those who came after me. When you open a door, you never quite know who will walk through and what new world they'll bring. People are still walking through, pushing for equal pay and opportunities, widening understanding of Torah, and setting the path for generations to come. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchett. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 64 degrees in Boston at 448. Ahead on All Things Considered, how gun companies made record profits during the pandemic. That's just ahead here on WBUR. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight with a chance of some showers. Lows will be around 56 degrees, cloudy early tomorrow, becoming mostly sunny, although there's a chance of showers in the late afternoon. The highs will be around 73 degrees. Sunshine on Sunday, a high of 73, mostly sunny on Monday, a high of 72, and partly sunny on Tuesday with a chance of some showers later in the day. The high again will be around 72 degrees. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet, presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live now through Sunday. Tickets at bostonballet.org. AI can actually pretty accurately predict when people are going to die. That raises many ethical questions, including... Does this do better than physicians who are left to decide to themselves? AI, ethics, and your care. Join us for episode two of our special series, Smarter Health, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Healthcare. That's On Point, tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. The mass shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde have horrified Americans. Nineteen children and two adults shot to death in Uvalde. Ten people killed in Buffalo. And then again this week, four more people shot and killed at a medical building in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And the list goes on and on. Mass shootings make headlines, but gun violence is an everyday problem in the U.S., and it skyrocketed during the pandemic, as did gun company profits. Publicly traded gun manufacturers have netted some $3 billion since the pandemic began. That is according to The Trace, a journalism nonprofit covering gun violence. Champ Barton reported the story and joins us now. Hi there. Hi. $3 billion 
since the pandemic began in net profits for gun manufacturers. How unusual is that? How far above what you know the profits that they'd been recording in, in prior years? For several of these companies, it was the most profitable years in their history, according to SEC filings, or at least in the past you know 10 or 15 years. And that squares with what we saw from the gun sales increase of 2020 and 2021, which is that those were two of the highest years on record for gun sales. It's also important to note that these gun manufacturers and ammunition manufacturers, it seems, were able to also keep costs down during the pandemic. Uh, Their sales numbers or their profit numbers rather outpaced their sales numbers slightly. Um, It's not entirely clear what was causing that disparity between the sales numbers and the profit numbers, but certainly they were able to keep costs down in addition to having these record sales. This is based on public filings, or how were you able to verify this? As far as gun sales writ large across the country are concerned, that information is essentially kept by the FBI. They record background checks on legally purchased firearms from federal firearms licensees, and those background check numbers are a proxy for gun sales. They obviously undercount because there are a number of private sales that do not get background checks, but the FBI keeps those statistics and we reached the highest number of background checks ever in 2020. So why? What was it about the pandemic that motivated people to go out and buy a lot of guns, buy a lot of ammo? It's a combination of factors. I mean, typically these sales spikes are seasonal and they tend to follow the election cycle a little bit. But what drives the sale surge in 2020 was not really the most standard event. When the pandemic started, there was a lot of fear of sort of social unrest and sort of a breakdown of the social order. There was sort of fear that the institutions would not be able to protect us. If you had a problem, could you call the police in the middle of a pandemic? Would the police show up in the middle of a pandemic? There were these overwhelming you know, questions and fears about whether or not people could be protected or could count on their institutions to protect them. And so that had driven an early surge in gun buying, at least as far as sort of anecdotal evidence confirms. But then there was the George Floyd protests and fear around social unrest related to those protests certainly spurred a continuation of that gun buying surge. Then there was the election, which added to it some more. And then there was the insurrection in January, you know, which further added to these persistent fears that people were going to need to protect themselves at a certain point from one group or another. And so it was like kind of like a quadruple whammy there that led to these record numbers. Let me circle back to where we started and the mass shootings um, from which America is, is reeling in Uvalde, in Buffalo and beyond. Do you see a connection? How do you see the link between what you're reporting, these record profits, and events like this? So I think that the events like we saw in Uvalde and in Buffalo are extremely rare, and it's important to remember that they're extremely rare. Overwhelmingly, gun violence in the U.S. is occurring in cities. It's occurring in personal disputes and interpersonal disputes that are carried out with handguns. And I think the connection between the gun industry's surging profits is between the gun industry surging profits and the more routine gun violence that we see every day in cities across the country warrants significantly more consideration than the connection between the gun industry's profits and these more unusual mass shootings. There's certainly consideration to be had about the kind of advertising that the gun industry does. The Sandy Hook parents in their lawsuit against Remington certainly explored that. But overwhelmingly, it's it's this handgun violence that causes the most gun deaths, and that the gun manufacturers have sort of the most power to arguably have the most power to reduce. Champ Barton, thank you. Thanks. 
He's a reporter with The Trace, a nonprofit that reports on gun violence in America. Every now and then, it is worth listening to your kids. That's what David King learned during the pandemic. What brought him to such a drastic measure? Well, let's go back 20 years to when King was working as a lawyer, looking for something else in life, and he found some inspiration. I can't say I'd always had a passion for sugar or I'd always had a passion for confectionery. It was just a... It seemed like such a wonderful process. King fell in love with making candy, opened a store named Sticky. It's in the Rocks neighborhood of Sydney. There, he and his team make hard candies. It starts as this large quantity of molten sugar. We cool it and add colors. It bubbles. We then sculpt it quite large. We we build one giant cylindrical, what we would call a lolly, but you guys would call a candy. They then stretch out that giant cylinder until it's really skinny and it hardens. And then they cut it to reveal all kinds of intricate designs from Pokemon to koalas, even ones with words in them. The business was doing well until, boom, COVID hit. In March of 2020, there were no customers. Sticky was about to shut down. We just thought, We've got a small social media following. Why don't we try live stream? So they gave it a try, streaming the candy making process. The first one had about 30 viewers. And as they kept posting, it grew to a couple thousand viewers. King's daughter, Annabelle, was in her last year of high school at the time. She wanted to take it a step further. While live streams are great, not everyone has an hour every day to watch one. So she pestered her dad to let her make a TikTok for Sticky. Annabelle had to convince me because I honestly didn't even know what TikTok was. (laughs) (laughs) The TikToks were a hit. Two years later, they have six million followers. The support and love that gets shown to us from all over the world is just extraordinary. Revenue has tripled since Annabelle's work launched. And it changed her life trajectory. I would never have made a decision to go into marketing and media if it hadn't been for the work I was already doing. It was not something that would have ever occurred to me to do. And for David, the best part is connecting with viewers from all over the world. People reach out all the time and tell me and us that we've saved their lives in a, in a dark, dark time. What people have given back to us and what we've given to them um, has made for really, really interesting and quite powerful community. The candy shop is bustling again. And as for father and daughter... There's something really lovely about getting to stand next to your dad and make lollies with him. It's really sweet. In the end, I don't care if you buy lollies or not. Why not hang out with us for a little while? David and Annabelle King, candy and video makers from Sydney, Australia. Thanks for being with us on All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches. 
Online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants. Corporate food solutions at easycater.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 64 degrees and a minute before 5 o'clock. Ahead on All Things Considered, U.S. employers added 390,000 jobs last month. We'll have details just ahead here on WBUR. The forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. Chance of some showers. The lows will be around 56 degrees. Cloudy early tomorrow, then becoming mostly sunny. Chance of some showers in the late afternoon. The highs will be around 73. Again, right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Picasso, a modern way to buy and co-own a second home. Picasso brings buyers together, then manages the home. Listings at PACASO.com. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. employers added 390,000 jobs in May. Good news for the White House, which is trying to show it's hard at work to bring down inflation. Price increases are still outpacing people's paychecks. It's Friday, June 3rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have details on the jobs report. Also ahead, Ukrainian officials have put up a display of destroyed Russian vehicles in front of the country's foreign ministry, intending to show the residents and the world that Russia can be defeated. And some students turned activists on gun control feel deflated after years of mass shootings and seemingly little congressional action. Even five years ago, I probably would have had a litany of things that made me hopeful, and right now I'm just not. We'll hear from an activist who was in high school in Newtown during the 2012 shooting. It's 5.01, now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Willman. One of the educators at the elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, has opened court proceedings against gunmaker Daniel Defense. The company is the maker of one of the two AR-15-style rifles that were purchased by the Uvalde school shooter. NPR's Laura Benshoff says the educator is exploring whether it's possible to sue the gunmaker for how it promotes firearms. Amy Marin, a special ed staffer at the school when the shooting happened, is the person named in the suit. And it aims to gather information from the gunmaker, Daniel Defense, about how they advertise their AR-15 style rifles. Depending on what they find, the company may be liable for marketing them in a way that's appealing to young people or those who want to commit crimes. Federal law prohibits gun manufacturers from being held liable for the misuse of firearms by third parties, including criminals, but there may be exceptions such as how firearms are advertised. A man was arrested outside the U.S. Capitol this morning after Capitol Police discovered he was carrying a fake badge, a BB gun, body armor, high-capacity magazines, and other ammunition. NPR's Susan Davis has more. Capitol Police say a patrol officer approached a man who had parked his vehicle near the west side of the Capitol around 5 a.m. The man was identified as Jerome Felipe from Flint, Michigan, and he gave officers permission to search his vehicle. No actual guns were recovered. The 53-year-old man is a retired police officer out of New York. He presented a fake badge that had Department of Interpol on it and told officers he was a criminal investigator with the agency. He faces charges for unlawful possession of high-capacity magazines and unregistered ammunition. 
His arrest comes as Congress is debating legislation to toughen gun laws in the wake of mass shootings, including one at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. Former Trump White House advisor Peter Navarro has been indicted by a federal grand jury. As NPR's Kerry Johnson reports, Navarro faces two counts of contempt of Congress over the breach of the Capitol on January 6th of last year. Prosecutors say Peter Navarro refused to comply with a subpoena from the select committee investigating the siege on the Capitol. The 72-year-old Navarro now faces two charges, one for his failure to appear for a deposition and another for failing to turn over documents. Each of the charges carries a maximum penalty of a year in jail and fines up to $100,000. Navarro is argued he should be immune from testifying because he's shielded by executive privilege through former President Trump. The sitting president, Joe Biden, has argued January 6th was a severe attack on democracy that doesn't deserve those legal shields. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Measurements of the main global warming gas have now shot past a key milestone. NOAA scientists say the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere last month averaged 421 parts per million. That's more than 50 percent higher than pre-industrial levels. Stocks ended lower on Wall Street today. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Massachusetts Treasurer Deb Goldberg is calling for the state pension fund to divest from gun companies. She wants the legislature to approve a measure that requires the state to divest its shares in companies that make at least 15 percent of their revenue from selling firearms, ammunition and accessories for civilians. Emily Katonik is the Treasurer's Director of Policy and Legislative Affairs. We've been engaging with gun companies and ammunition companies for a long time, and there has been great resistance to put in place any public safety measures. I think we know here that engagement is not going to result in a safe product, and that's why the approach is different. Gun companies make up less than one-tenth of a percent of the total state pension fund. Massachusetts gasoline prices have hit a record high for the third day in a row. AAA says the average cost for a gallon of regular gas in the Bay State is $4.85. That's up six cents from yesterday's previous record high. The cost of a gallon of diesel remains the same as yesterday, averaging $6.24. Fewer Massachusetts counties have high levels of COVID-19. The Centers for Disease Control says the number has dropped from 11 last month to 5. The CDC recommends people wear masks in public indoor settings in counties with high COVID levels. Those counties include Suffolk, Middlesex, Norfolk, Barnstable and Franklin. COVID case numbers and hospitalizations have been falling in Massachusetts for a few weeks, but remain higher than their previous low back in March. Most of the state is already experiencing some kind of drought conditions, even though it is only early June. The U.S. Drought Monitor shows abnormally dry conditions in central Massachusetts, the Merrimack Valley, and on Cape Cod and the islands. Things are even more severe in metro Boston, Cape Ann, and on the south coast. This week's new federal data show drought conditions in the state worsen this week compared to last. Sports, the Red Sox are in California to take on the A's tonight. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. Chance of showers, the lows around 56 degrees. Cloudy early tomorrow, becoming mostly sunny. Chance of some showers late in the day. Highs will be around 73 degrees. Right now, 63 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. U.S. employers added nearly 400,000 jobs last month, the kind of news that ordinarily would prompt celebrations at the White House. But for many people, the strong job market is overshadowed by high inflation. This week, the Biden administration tried to show that it is on the job, highlighting the president's efforts to get prices under control. We're going to talk through the politics and economics with NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid and NPR economic correspondent Scott Horsley. Hi, team. Hi there. Good with you. Um, Scott, these job numbers today, these were better than many forecasters had expected. Why? Yeah, this was another solid jobs report. Uh, employers added 390,000 jobs in May. That is a little bit slower than we saw earlier this year. But, you know, that's kind of what you'd expect as we get this close to full employment. The U.S. has now replaced 96% of the jobs that were lost early in the pandemic. And last month's gains were pretty widespread. You know, we saw job gains in bars and restaurants, factories, construction companies. One exception was retailers. They cut close to 61,000 jobs in May. But overall, employment in the retail industry is still well above where it was before the pandemic. And that's thanks in part to the buying bins that Americans have been on for the last couple of years. Are employers able to find enough workers? It's not easy. Uh, This is a very tight job market. There's still a lot of turnover as workers shift from one job to another. But the workforce did expand last month. Some 330,000 people joined or rejoined the labor force. And that's good to see because when unemployment's as low as it is, you have to keep adding workers if you're going to add jobs. Uh, I talked to Denise Beckson, who's with Maury Piers. That's a water park and amusement center in Wildwood, New Jersey. They typically hire about 1,500 people for the summer season. And Beckson says she's feeling pretty confident they will have the workers they need this summer. Our typical employees are teens and college students, retirees, teachers, and we're seeing you know, a lot of interest in coming back to seasonal summer jobs. There was a pretty sizable jump last month in people aged 55 and older coming out of retirement and looking for jobs. You can see that as a positive. Maybe they think the pandemic is less threatening, so they feel safer coming back to work. Or maybe as a negative that they're being forced back into the workforce by rising prices and battered retirement accounts. Uh, Bexon says the water park also has seen a return of foreign-born workers on seasonal visas this summer. That's a program that a lot of resorts have traditionally relied on that was largely on hold in 2020 and 2021. Hmm. Um, President Biden sounded happy about these jobs numbers. He described the new report as excellent this morning. He also did acknowledge Americans are anxious about inflation. Uh, He knows it's weighing not only on people's pocketbooks, but also on his approval ratings. Um, The question, Asma, what can he do about it? That is an excellent question. You know, I will say the president and his team are speaking more directly about the pain that people have been feeling. Uh, In a nutshell, their message is, I hear you, I feel you, we are working on it. And this week, you saw a bit of a PR push from the White House trying to spread that, you know, economic inflation message on TV airwaves. Uh, You heard a bit about what that message sounds like in the president's remarks today. There's no denying that high prices, particularly around gasoline and food, are a real problem for people. But there's every reason for the American people to feel confident that we'll meet these challenges. Because of the enormous progress we've made on the economy, the Americans can tackle inflation from a position of strength. 
That last line is the White House's central argument. They feel confident they can tackle inflation from a position of strength. And essentially, they're saying that because of economic gains in 2021, you know, job growth, increased family savings, a smaller deficit, the country is in a better position to try to cool the economy without crashing it. Yeah. Um, how is that sales pitch working for the White House? It is a tough sell. I was speaking with Austin Goolsby earlier this week. He was one of the top economic advisors in the Obama White House. And he was telling me that really it doesn't matter what message any White House tries to deliver to reframe inflation. So long as inflation is high, voters are going to be in a sour mood. And the president, really like any president, has limited levers to do anything about inflation. Uh, the president himself, President Biden, tried to explain that this week. He met with the chairman of the Federal Reserve, and he emphasized the independence of the Fed in fighting inflation. And can I just say the Fed is keeping a really close eye on the job market for signs of which way inflation might be going. Uh, Today's report does show upward pressure on wages started to cool a little bit last month. That's what the Fed wants to see. Uh, Average wages in May were up 5.2 percent from a year ago. That's a smaller jump than we've seen in previous months. Wages are still climbing faster than the central bank is comfortable with, though, so you can expect the Fed to keep raising interest rates pretty aggressively for now. The Fed wants to put the brakes on inflation but not cause the economy to skid into recession. There are lots of skeptics who don't think the Fed's going to be able to pull off that balancing act. But if you tried to imagine you know, the flight path to a so-called soft landing, it might look something like this jobs report. Huh. Uh, Osmo, we've just got about 30 seconds, but how worried is the White House about, as Scott just put it, the economy skidding into recession? You know, I will say the messaging we have heard from this White House seems to suggest that they think, you know, that the, the, they have a confidence that the economy has safeguards to weather inflation better than other countries. But I will say, Mary Louise, there's the economic storyline and the political storyline, and those two things do not often align. There are elections in November. NPR's Asma Khalid and Scott Horsley, thanks to you both. My pleasure. You're welcome. Ukrainian forces are struggling to hold off Russian advances in the country's east. Bitter fighting continues for control of the city of Severodonetsk, but in the country's capital, life goes on with seemingly little effects of the war. And as NPR's Peter Granitz reports from Kyiv, the Ukrainian government is displaying destroyed Russian tanks on city streets to remind the population the war rages on. It's the 100th day of the war and the bells chime, marking one o'clock at St. Michael's Golden Domed Monastery on a beautiful sky blue afternoon. It's perched atop a hill and it stands next to Ukraine's foreign ministry in Mihailivska Square. And in that picturesque square sit the shells and remnants of bombed out and burnt tanks, rockets, missile shells, rotting food rations sit on what was once the tread of a tank. And so do a pair of boots that, not long ago, fit on a Russian soldier. Alina Filonenka snaps a photo of her four-year-old daughter sitting on a long gray rocket. Filonenka says she and her husband decided to take their daughter here to see the wreckage, to help her understand that very bad strangers came into their country. Her daughter's little, she says, but understands a lot. Ola of Charik was a kindergarten teacher before the invasion. She fled Kyiv, and when she returned, she says, she no longer had a job. Seeing the vehicles with their shattered glass windows, smells of burnt oil and rubber and mangled metal is a good reminder, she says. We wanted to see the vehicles that the monsters rode, she says, and what's left of them. There's little doubt here that this is a display of death. 
that doesn't stop people from taking selfies or climbing on and in the vehicles, feeling burnt flak jackets. Yaroslav Tinchenko dismisses any notion that the display is too graphic or offensive. He's the deputy director of the Military History Museum of Ukraine, which first created the street exhibits after Russia first invaded in 2014. Two, three months ago, they came here. We survived the invasion, he says. People died. Others spent weeks in basements. That, he says, is more traumatizing than a pair of boots. And while Ukraine has lost huge amounts of land in the east, he says the goal of this exhibit is to remind people that Russia can be defeated. We want future soldiers to see that Russian vehicles can be burnt, he says, and that might motivate them when they're mobilized to fight. The Defense Ministry, which sponsors the museum and exhibit, continues to add new tanks and armored personnel carriers. Oleksandr Malinka, standing next to the turret blown off a tank, calls the exhibit an example, a sign that Ukraine can resist, that it can stand up to one of the biggest armies in the world. Slava Ukraine! Slava Ukraine, he says as we say goodbye. Glory to Ukraine. Peter Granitz, NPR News, Kyiv. Today is the second of four days, which the United Kingdom has reserved to celebrate Queen Elizabeth II and her 70 years on the throne. In other words, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. There have already been parades and ceremonies, thousands of street parties are expected, and all of that has generated lots and lots of merchandise. It was actually bespoke made for me. How long ago did you get it? Oh, about uh, three or four months ago. I got it specially for the occasion. Our London correspondent, Frank Lankfitt, found Maximilian Somerset in a custom-made UK flag suit with a color-changing waistcoat, obviously. I can change it red, white, and blue, or the the entire spectrum of the uh, Union Jack. Anita Ryder was also in the crowd wearing a giant hair bow. Um, It's an absolutely gigantic, massive... Union Jack bow, put Betty Boots to shame, and my sister-in-law bought them from the internet. (laughs) Yeah, you can find a lot of Jubilee souvenirs online, ranging from a $2,500 music box to $50 leggings emblazoned with corgis. That's right. The Queen's love for corgi dogs has inspired so much corgi merch, like corgi biscuits, corgi moose cake, corgi pillows, corgi tea towels. Now, if corgis somehow are not your thing, there is also a limited edition Queen Elizabeth II Barbie doll. If you can find it, it sold out within three seconds, according to British retailer John Lewis. Now it's available on eBay for 300 bucks. I'm from Wales, I'm from Cardiff, so anything with either a Union Jack or a Dragon, and I've been buying it, so we all have. Our London producer spoke to Anne Middleton, who has been snatching up memorabilia and has also sourced a Jubilee outfit from a bespoke dress down to her nails. That was um, hand-painted, a crown, by one of my, my hairdresser. I thought she did a brilliant job. The Platinum Jubilee continues through Sunday, and plenty more themed merchandise will change hands and nails through then. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 62 degrees in Boston at 518. 
Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear from a former Sandy Hook school student who has become an activist. That's just ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. And Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and building socially responsible investment portfolios for 25 years. Zevin.com slash WBUR. In business news, dozens of Neiman Marcus workers will lose their jobs this summer in Natick. The retailer has filed notice with the state that it will lay off 53 workers. That's because the company is closing its store at the Natick Mall. The mall plans to transition the space into space for lab and office space. It's the latest example of a shift at the Natick Mall from retail to other offerings. Previously, stores have been transformed into a brewery, a trampoline park, and a Dave & Buster's restaurant and arcade. On Wall Street, stocks were lower, the Dow down about 1%, or 349 points at 32,900. NASDAQ down 2.5%, or 304 points, to 12,013. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals, hybrid workplace strategy reports, and more at mparchitectsboston.com. And Merrimack Repertory Theater, presenting a toe-tapping, good-time musical, Woody Says, The Life and Music of Woody Guthrie, June 8th through 26th, mrt.org. Sports, the Red Sox are out in California to take on the A's tonight. The forecast, mostly cloudy tonight, chance of some showers, lows around 56. Cloudy early tomorrow, becoming mostly sunny, chance of showers in the late afternoon, the highs around 73. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Among those adding their voices to the debate over gun control and school safety are young people who have been personally affected by mass shootings, including the one in Newtown, Connecticut. That's where a gunman killed 20 children and six educators in 2012. NPR's Tovia Smith spoke with a former Newtown student-turned-activist who sees the work as more urgent now, but at the same time, more difficult to do. Of all the mass shootings since Newtown, Buffalo, Boulder, Pittsburgh, Parkland, and more, none has rattled Sarah Clements more than Uvalde. I found myself, when I first learned about the shooting, essentially blacking out. Clements was 16 years old when she spent hours under a table in lockdown at her high school down the road from the Sandy Hook Elementary School. She was terrified for herself and for her mother, a second grade teacher at the Sandy Hook School. Clements says memories of those days that she had long since blocked out came rushing back after Uvalde. To see faces of the children, these like primal screams from parents, who realize that their kid hasn't come out of the building that are so starkly similar to what we experienced that my brain has maybe been trying to protect me from seeing those like forced in front of me again. It's really like a shock to your system. 
That shock, Clement says, quickly turned to anger. It's the anger that so many of us tried so hard so that another community wouldn't have to experience what we did. Clements, now 26, is one of many students who turned to political activism after a school shooting turned their lives upside down. They've organized walkouts, teach-ins and marches, lobbied lawmakers, and have even run for office. Clements started a student advocacy organization and has spent the past decade running youth summits, trainings, and strategy workshops, as well as protesting and speaking out. She was propelled to get involved, she says, days after the shooting, when she heard comments made by the head of the NRA. I do vividly remember seeing over and over again this clip of Wayne LaPierre say this idea that like anything but guns is the problem. Since when did the gun automatically become a bad word? And I remember he kept repeating the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a a good good guy guy with a gun. gun. That just ignited something in me. It was such an offensive remark. Clement says she feels the same fury now, hearing calls to arm teachers, even as stories emerge of bad decisions in Uvalde made by law enforcement. You know, if even trained military and police officers at the very top of their profession could not do that, asking educators to have a firearm and do that is nonsense. Since the Uvalde shooting, a new wave of student activism has bubbled up, but Clements knows momentum tends to wane just as quickly, creating a second level of heartbreak for activists like her. In her nearly 10 years of work, she's seen some wins at the state level, like tougher background checks, waiting periods, and red flag laws, but nothing from Congress. After Sandy Hook, she says she was crushed that the murder of 20 kids and six teachers was not enough to compel lawmakers to act. Now, she says, she's starting to believe there may never be enough. I think there is not some number of shootings or some number of bodies for the people in power that refuse to take action. And I don't know why. She tries so hard not to be jaded, she says, but having seen so many promises of action peter out and feeling like even democracy itself is under fire right now, Clement says she struggles to find cause for optimism. I used to be able to answer this question. Like, 10 years ago, I would talk about how there's this growing movement. There's young people who are standing up, who are walking out of their schools in protest, even five years ago. I probably would have had a litany of things that made me hopeful, and right now I'm just not. Still, Clemens says she will keep on doing the work. It does take a toll on your soul, as she puts it, and it's infuriating to feel the onus is on students themselves to drive change, but eventually, she insists, change will come from her generation, those who grew up hiding under desks in active shooter drills, and the ever-growing number of those who hid from actual shooters as well. Tovia Smith, NPR News. The European Union today formally approved the plan for its members to stop buying Russian oil ship by sea because of the war in Ukraine. That could be a big economic blow to Russia over time. And so could a part of the package that anyone who owns a car can relate to. It's about insurance. NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam reports. When this latest round of sanctions was put on the table, much of the focus was Europe's embargo of most Russian oil imports. 
What got less attention was a ban on providing insurance on tankers carrying Russian crude anywhere in the world, which is set to take effect by the end of the year. I think some people that are uh, unfamiliar with how these things work, they may um, underestimate what the impact could be. It's a huge deal. Eric Brookhausen in New York is head of tanker research at Potent & Partners, a shipbroker and energy consultancy. He says the EU oil embargo was an important move, but Russia could try to find new clients for its crude. Brookhausen says adding the insurance ban will prevent that. It's the one-two punch. That's the second one. That could be the knockout blow. The UK is also expected to bar insurance on tankers carrying Russian oil. There's a specific arrangement for maritime insurance, where two entities cover more than 90% of the world's tankers. Lloyds of London covers physical damage. The International Group of P&I Clubs provides liability. John Miklas, president of the American Institute of Marine Underwriters, says vessels can't dock at most of the world's ports unless they have these types of insurance. In case you strike another vessel, or even more importantly, if you ground or, or have a casualty where you're spilling oil, that's probably the biggest, you know, the, remember way, way back to the Exxon Valdez or something like that. Once the insurance ban kicks in, any European tankers carrying Russian oil, which is most of them, will be barred not only from Europe and the UK, but from other major markets like China and India, says Halima Croft, head of commodities strategy at RBC Capital Markets. The EU is not simply saying, okay, we're gonna, not going to take the barrels, but we're fine somebody else taking it, and hence we don't have any major market disruption. The EU is actually moving to take those barrels off the market, not just move them around, and that is important. But Brookhausen says that'll likely mean higher prices for oil. So if you take off like three, four million barrels a day of Russian exports because they can't find the ships to move it, what do you think is going to happen to the oil price? And Croft says there's no telling what Russia will do even before the insurance ban kicks in. I think as we look out over summer, the question is going to be, do the Russians respond in such a way to give more economic pain to the West in retaliation? Croft says Russia could simply cut all oil supplies to Europe or hold back on other commodities, such as wheat. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 62 degrees in Boston at 529. Ahead on All Things Considered, FDA scientists have concluded that a new COVID vaccine that could appeal to some vaccine-hesitant people appears to be safe and effective, which means that it may soon win authorization. That's just ahead here on WBUR. Mostly cloudy tonight, chances some showers. The lows will be around 56 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com slash gig. 
any foreign correspondent spending time in Haiti has to ask themselves, like, why is a country like this? Mm -hmm. And the answer you normally get when you ask people about this deeper why is corruption. Mm. But the more I read about Haiti, I started to learn about this thing called the independence debt. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Democratic lawmakers in Oklahoma are calling for more restrictive gun laws in the state. Beth Wallace with State Impact Oklahoma reports the move is in response to the recent spate of mass shootings across the nation, including an attack at a medical building in Tulsa this week where a gunman killed four people before turning the weapon on himself. The few Democrats in the Oklahoma House gathered Thursday to lay out their plan for addressing gun violence after a mass shooting Wednesday left four people and the gunman dead at the St. Francis Hospital campus in Tulsa. Oklahoma has passed a slew of pro-gun laws in the last few years. It was the first and so far only state to pass a prohibition on red flag laws. Tulsa Area Representative Monroe Nichols had words for his Republican colleagues. I think a lot of folks took those votes in the past thinking something like this would never happen. Um, Now it's happened. Democrats want to repeal many of those laws, implement waiting periods, and raise the minimum age to purchase assault weapons. But the prospects for change are limited in a legislature so dominated by pro-gun Republicans. For NPR News, I'm Beth Wallace in Tulsa. Tropical storm warnings are in effect for more than 10 million people in southern Florida, Cuba, and the Bahamas. Philippe Papin at the National Hurricane Center says the system is likely to become the first tropical storm or depression of the season. It's likely the system is going to become a tropical storm, and uh, the threat for tropical storm force winds will start this afternoon evening along the Florida Peninsula and Florida Keys. Forecasters say the storm could drop more than six inches of rain in South Florida this weekend, leading to potential flooding. All of the major indices closed lower today on Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 348 points. The Nasdaq fell 304. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Preliminary figures for revenue collection in the state last month are mixed. The Department of Revenue says collections for May were $138 million higher than expected. However, they were down more than $1.5 billion compared to May of last year. The department says the drop in year-over-year revenue is primarily because last year the income tax filing deadline was extended from April to May because of COVID. The Speaker of the Massachusetts House says mourning the horrific loss of life to gun violence is not enough. In tweets today, Speaker Ron Mariano says Massachusetts has some of the most comprehensive gun laws in the country that should serve as a national model. Mariano says the state has one of the lowest gun death rates in the country. And while he did not outline anything specific, he says the legislature is looking for new ways to improve gun safety measures in Massachusetts. Roxbury Community College is getting a $4 million federal grant to renovate a long-abandoned 19th century home on its campus. The school plans to use the historic Dudley House to teach students home construction and renovation skills, including carpentry. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey says the money will bring the building to net zero emissions standards and provide hands-on education. The young people who will be trained here are going to know how to ensure that everything that is constructed is net zero from now 
to eternity because that's what this generation of young people want. Roxbury Community College will also use the restored building to provide space for community meetings. Celtics fans will have another chance to watch the NBA Finals outdoors in public. The City of Boston announced today it will host another viewing party Sunday night at Fennel Hall for Game 2 of the Finals. Game 2 is on the road against the Golden State Warriors in San Francisco. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Crystal, the very first on-ice experience from Cirque du Soleil, now playing at Aganis Arena through June 12th. Tickets are available at CirqueDuSoleil.com. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight, chances of some showers, the lows around 56. Cloudy early tomorrow, becoming mostly sunny, chances of showers in the late afternoon, the highs will be around 73 degrees. Right now it's 62 degrees in Boston, this is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. A new COVID vaccine that could appeal to people who have been hesitant to get inoculated appears to be highly effective. That's according to an assessment released today by scientists at the Food and Drug Administration. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein is here. Hey, Rob. Hey, Mary Louise. So yet another COVID vaccine. What is it? It's made by a company called Novavax, and it uses a much more traditional approach than the so-called mRNA vaccines. The Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines work by injecting genetic coding into muscles that cells then use to manufacture a key protein from the virus inside the body. That stimulates the immune system to activate protective immunity. This Novavax vaccine works by injecting a version of that viral protein itself that's been made in the laboratory, along with something known as an adjuvant, a kind of a substance that turbocharges the immune reaction. Mm-hmm. I talked about this yesterday with Dr. Gregory Glenn at Novavax. Proteins made in a vat, purified, put into a solution, have actually been used for quite a few vaccines very successfully, beginning with hepatitis B decades ago and flu, shingles vaccine. It follows a tradition of a good way to protect people against infectious disease. And today, the FDA released its own assessment of the Nova vaccine, saying a study conducted by the company involving about 30,000 people shows the vaccine looks to be about 90% effective at preventing mild, moderate, and severe COVID-19. Huh, 90% effective sounds great. Um, But we already have Moderna. We already have the Pfizer-BioNTech. Why do we need another vaccine? Yeah, the thinking is that it's always good to have as many options as possible, like, you know, for people who can't take one of those vaccines for some reason or maybe haven't been willing to get one of those because they use a new technology or because they believe some of the misinformation out there that they're not safe. I talked about this with Dr. Anthony Fauci, the White House science advisor. 
we all know there are certain people in the population who are still concerned about a vaccine that is relatively new in the arena of vaccinology. And they may want a more classical vaccine that we have years and years of experience with. Novavax might fill in that niche for those people who are reluctant to get an mRNA vaccine. But I have to say, not everyone is so sure about this. Here's Saad Omer. He studies vaccines at Yale. I'm not sure that I buy into that, uh, unfortunately. It's not like there's a huge chunk of people just waiting for something other than an mRNA vaccine and they'll just get vaccinated. I don't think so. But another possible use of this vaccine is as a booster. The idea is that a totally different kind of vaccine could stimulate the immune system in a way that might provide longer lasting, possibly broader protection against more variants. But that remains to be seen. So what are the bridges left to cross before we might see this vaccine made available? Yeah, so the FDA scientists are saying the vaccine looks generally pretty safe, though they are concerned about a handful of cases of a rare swelling of the heart that has been seen in some people who also got the mRNA vaccines. The company says those cases could have been just a coincidence. But the FDA is convening a committee of independent advisors next Tuesday to review the Novavax vaccine. And one big open question is how well this will work against Omicron, mm -hmm. which wasn't circulating when the study was conducted. FDA scientists say they think it will, but that that also remains unproven. All right. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein, thank you. Anytime. Over 20 million tons of grain, like corn and wheat, are trapped in Ukraine because of Russia's ongoing blockade of its ports. It's a deepening crisis for Ukrainian farmers and a threat to global food security. As Waylon Wong and Darian Woods from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain, getting the grain out by other means comes with challenges. Roman Slastone is the general director of the Ukrainian Agribusiness Club, and he's a farmer himself. We need to feed uh, our people and we need to produce food and export to other countries. But Roman says that when the war broke out, farmers jumped into action. They sent grain to the Ukrainian military and to people who were under siege in blockaded cities. They also gave diesel to the war effort, which is fuel that they were saving for the spring planting season. Another huge wartime disruption for Ukrainian farmers was Russia's naval blockade. Almost all of the 60 million tons of grain that Ukraine exports every year is shipped out via ports like Odessa. And commercial activity at those ports was basically shut down as soon as Russia invaded. In these last few months during the war, Ukraine has been setting up new logistics and transportation systems for its trapped grain. The crops can't leave via ships from Black Sea ports, so Ukraine has to find new water routes using river barges on the Danube River to Romania. But mostly the grain is traveling by land, getting transported by railway and trucks to other European countries. These land options, though, have challenges. Let's take trains first. The problem here is something called rail gauge or track gauge. This is the width between the two rails of track. And it turns out the Ukrainian track gauge is wider than what's used in its European neighbors. So a train carrying Ukrainian wheat can't just travel into, say, Hungary on the same track. 
It has to stop at the border at a special terminal, and the cargo has to be reloaded onto a different grain car that fits the European standard. So that's the train option, which Roman says transported more than half the grain in April. Another major piece of the strategy is using trucks. The issue here is that drivers need special licenses to haul cargo internationally, and customs procedures and sanitary checks on the borders are causing delays. Then there's another issue, one that doesn't have to do with railway track widths or customs paperwork. The Ukrainian government says that Russia is stealing grain. Roman says he's heard about this too. They steal grain and transport it to Crimea, and then uh, or load on ships and uh, transport to countries which do not ask about origin of the grain. You know. If the 20 million tons of grain don't get moved out of Ukraine to the countries that rely on those exports, it's dangerous for both global food security and Ukraine's farmers. They, they definitely need uh, money to buy fuel, to pay salaries, uh, and yeah, to buy spare parts for combines, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So here's how the math breaks down: Before the war, Ukraine was exporting five to six million tons of grains every month. In March, exports were just a fraction of that, 300,000 tons. Then in April, thanks to the big scramble to put grain on river barges and train cars and trucks, one million tons got exported. It's been a huge challenge to get grain out of the country with a war raging, but Roman has an ambitious goal. He wants to triple that number. Darian Woods, Waylon Wong, and PR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. Britain is celebrating a milestone in the monarchy, 70 years on the throne for Queen Elizabeth, an oasis of stability in a changing world. I think they represent that consistency. That no matter what happens in the family, they pull together, they, they continue to represent consistency. And in an ever-changing world that we live in now, I think that that consistency is uh, it, it's foundational for our society and we look to that. Far less certain, the future of the monarchy. This afternoon on NPR's Daily News podcast, consider this. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A grand jury has indicted former Trump White House advisor Peter Navarro for contempt of Congress. Prosecutors say Navarro refused to provide documents or testimony to the congressional panel investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Navarro blasted the Justice Department for what he calls hardball tactics. NPR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson has been following the case, and she's here with us now to break it down for us. Hey, Carrie. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so what do congressional investigators want to hear about from Peter Navarro? Well, they say Navarro and others close to former President Trump tried to delay the certification of the 2020 presidential election and actually change the outcome of the election. Navarro called this plan the Green Bay Sweep, and in his book he wrote it was, quote, a last best chance to snatch a stolen election from the Democrats' jaws of deceit. Now, Elsa, let's be clear. This election was not stolen. It was nope. free and fair, as mm -hmm. President Trump's own attorney general said. Navarro also took part in a call just a few days before January 6th last year, where he and Trump allegedly leaned on state lawmakers to get on board with this plan, though. Okay, so all of this sounds like it's right at the center of what lawmakers are investigating. So what reasons did Peter Navarro give for refusing to participate? Peter Navarro is a pretty 
pretty idiosyncratic guy. He's been talking a lot in public, even after a judge advised him this afternoon. Anything he says can be used against him. Here's part of what he had to say to reporters outside the courthouse. What that kangaroo committee is doing right now is investigating for punitive purposes. They're essentially acting as judge, jury, and executioner. Their clear mission is to prevent Donald John Trump from running for president in 2024 and being elected for president. And people like me are in their way. Peter Navarro wants Congress to negotiate with Trump's lawyers and leave him out of it. The problem is uh, that uh, the current president, Joe Biden, has said that executive privilege should not apply to what happened on January 6th, which he says was the worst attack on the government since the War of 1812. So even if Donald Trump wanted to assert executive privilege, the sitting president says not so fast. Right. OK, well, the House committee is getting ready to hold its first public hearings next week. Carrie, so what do you think? How likely is it that they're going to get information from Navarro in time for those hearings? I don't see any way. Also, you know, this case is now in the courts, which moves so <laughs> So slowly. And both Congress and the Justice Department say there's a broader principle at stake anyway. You can't flout oversight. If you do, there will be consequences. And Peter Navarro faces as many as two years in jail if he's convicted of contempt of Congress. Okay, so what comes next here? He's due back in court June 17th. A couple weeks from now, he aired a lot of grievances today. He complained he lives only 100 yards from the FBI, but they waited till he was at the airport headed to Nashville to go on a TV show to arrest him. And the judge gently advised Navarro to get a lawyer not to represent himself anymore, but Navarro says he's probably going to represent himself because he doesn't want to spend all his retirement savings on legal fees. Remember also another thing coming up, former Trump advisor Steve Bannon has been been fighting his own contempt of Congress charges. He's scheduled to face trial in D.C. in July, so it could be a very busy summer on this front. Indeed. That is NPR's Carrie Johnson. Thank you, Carrie. Happy to be here. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. It's 62 degrees in Boston at 548. Ahead on WBUR's All Things Considered, a conversation with Angel Olson about channeling heartbreak, new love, loss, and transformation on her new album, Big Time. That's ahead here on WBUR. And coming to City Space Monday, June 6th, WBUR reporter Daryl C. Murphy in conversation with hip-hop historian Dan Charnas on his book on seminal music producer Jay Dilla. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. And Volante Farms in Needham, with local produce and groceries, now with homegrown strawberries, asparagus, lettuce, and more. Volantefarms.com slash picking. And the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight with a chance of showers. The lows will be around 56 degrees. Cloudy early tomorrow, becoming mostly sunny, but with a chance of showers in the late afternoon. The highs will be around 73.
WBUR supporters include Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com and Dedham Community Theater, now open every day and showing Benediction and Jazz Fest, A New Orleans Story. Showtimes at DedhamCommunityTheater.com. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news. The news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Angel Olsen has not always mined her life for her music, but recently her life has provided enough material for several albums. It started a couple years ago. I had gone through a breakup. I was still like, kind of like not telling people that I was queer. I felt really alone and like, yeah, I don't know. It just felt like the end of the world. Then she fell in love. She came out, her father died, and soon after her mother. All of that joy, discovery, and loss provides a backdrop to her new record, Big Time. The album touches different points along that journey, like the song Go Home about pulling herself out of the funk of heartbreak. The world is changing. You can't reverse it. Go Home is a track that, for me, is about like realizing that I wanted to change the way I thought about my life. I wanted to spend time with people who, who matter to me, you know. I want to be seen by people. I want to be known. I want to feel at home with myself. I want to practice the truths that I feel instead of just talking about it. And I think that song is really, you know, that it's sort of like a song t- to myself. It's interesting. Um, the the image of a ghost and being a ghost keeps coming up. Yeah, I think. Well, I've always been kind of like, you know, an emo person, an emo kid, and I've always kind of like obsessed over like dark and light and like things that pass. And and sometimes you can change so much. It's if you were to face yourself from like five years ago, you know, would you recognize yourself, or would that person be a ghost to you? Hmm. To contrast that darkness, you also have this lightness. The title track on the album, Big Time, which you wrote with your partner, is like just this 
sort of unqualified love song, it feels like. Good morning, kisses, give you all mine. Pull back the curtains, show me the sunshine. It was an exercise at first. I, I tend to want to go into the studio with like 16 or 17 tracks, and I had like 13 or something, so I was stressing out. And they were just like, well, what if we wrote a song? And I was like, no. <laughs> they, your partner, Bo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> this is mine. <laughs> you know? I don't need you to help me. And you made it the title track, and so now do they just lord that over you all the time? Like, you didn't think this would work, and now it's the title track on the album? Well, they were just kind of like, I can't believe you're recording this song. And I was like, well, it's a song. I think it's a pretty good song. I think we did a good job. I think it's a pretty good song, too. If you don't mind my asking, am I correct that your partner met your mother for the first time at your father's funeral? That is true. And then within a couple of weeks, your mother herself was in hospice? It was maybe a month later she was in the hospital, and then she was in hospice after that, and she survived hospice, and then she went into a nursing home for 10 days, I think, and then she passed away. So she was hanging on. She was, like, you know, talking to God and just, like, she was like, you know, I told your dad I'm not ready. I'm not going Hmm. up there. And I would Hmm. just be like, oh, my God. (laughs) Like... I know that part of the joy of coming out can be that it allows people around you to see you as your full self. And so what has it meant for you that you didn't really have that opportunity with your parents? Um, you know, my parents are from a very different generation. and They adopted you when they were much later in life, right? Yeah, my parents were also from the Bible Belt. And like, as I got older... I had to come to terms with the fact that I wouldn't be able to tell them or explain to them my feelings or the way I felt about politics or the way that I felt about religion or a lot of things. I think I I, I learned very early on that we were so from such a different time that I just needed to learn how to love them and see them for the things that they were able to give to me. and. I'm so blessed that I could have done that because I feel like mm. a lot of friends of mine are still working on that with their f- folks. But And so you're thankful for what you got rather than... Yeah, I wasn't looking for them to like really see or understand my personal life. Like That's not what I'm looking for from my parents. I don't think that it's like possible, <laughs> you know, um, because they'll always see you as like as a child. So it's just a very different kind of love with them. And I think that's part of why I didn't tell my mom, you know, when I had these experiences. Not that, just, I just didn't feel like, oh, well, she, you know, what's the point of, like, upsetting her more? She's sick, you know? And I think that was kind of hard. Just like, oh, I don't want to make her more sick. I read somewhere that you said you wish your mother was here to listen to this album. Is there a specific song that you think you would have enjoyed playing for her? Uh, I think she would have liked Big Time. I think she would have loved Dream Thing. 
um, she just likes like country music, you know. So when and I told Sharon um, Sharon Van Etten, who you recorded a duet with last year. Yeah, Sharon and I, we recorded for Fallon, and my mother was in hospice when that aired. Here with the TV debut of their new collaboration, Like I Used To. Please welcome Sharon Van Etten and Angel Olsen. And she got all the nurses together and was like, that's my daughter and her friend, Sharon Van Etten. <laughs> you know? And that was like the last thing that she saw. But I do wish that my mom could have heard the record because I think she would have really liked it. Well, Angel Olsen, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Her new album, Big Time, is out now. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Workday an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. WBUR supporters include Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center. When it comes to cancer, it matters where you start and when you start. Don't wait. Visit youhaveus.org. And Native Plant Trust's Garden in the Woods in Framingham, offering pollinator-friendly plants for sustainable gardens grown from seeds without pesticides. NativePlantTrust.org. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I work with primarily Latino students, and many of them have said, these kids look like me. This could have been me, or this could have been my family, or this could have been us. Latino communities have been hit particularly hard in the days following the Uvalde shooting. It's Friday, June 3rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, how Latinos are coping in the aftermath of the Texas school shooting. Also this hour, a conversation with the White House COVID-19 coordinator about the latest guidance on children under five getting the vaccine to protect against the virus. And how in a post-Roe versus Wade world, Americans of childbearing age should prepare for less access to legal abortion. Stocks closed down today. Marketplace will have all the day's business news coming up at 6.30. It's 6.01. Now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Wilman. 
Today marks 100 days since Russia invaded Ukraine. Russian troops occupying the Ukrainian city of Mariupol are still detaining civilian men and forcing them into overcrowded camps in the area. That's according to the city's mayor, who fled before Russians captured the city. NPR's Greg Myrie reports. Mayor Vadim Boychenko estimates 100,000 residents remain in the devastated port city, now under full Russian control. He says food and drinking water are scarce, and there's no electrical power or cell phone service. The sewage system isn't working, and there's a powerful smell of death from thousands of bodies buried in shallow, makeshift graves. Russia is blocking residents from leaving and is detaining many men and sending them to camps in the region. The mayor, speaking at a news conference in Ukraine's capital, Kiev, says he's still able to contact some residents. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kiev. U.S., South Korean, and Japanese officials met in Seoul today. They say they're planning for numerous contingencies, including a possible North Korean nuclear test. NPR's Anthony Kuhn says such a test would be the first since 2017. U.S. Special Representative on North Korea, Song Kim, said Washington is prepared to adjust short-term and long-term military deployments to protect its allies and respond to provocations by North Korea. Speaking at a symposium, Kim said a seventh North Korean nuclear test would be highly destabilizing. Not only are we worried about regional security, but the credibility of the United Nations is at stake as well. When a country can just flaunt and violate multiple Security Council resolutions, it's a problem. Seoul and Washington say they've been monitoring North Korea's Punggye-ri underground test site and believe the North may be preparing to detonate an atomic bomb. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Police in Iowa say a man who fatally shot two women before killing himself in a church parking lot in the town of Ames had been romantically involved with one of the women. They say 33-year-old Jonathan Lee Whitlatch had been arrested for harassing her and had a history of assault and domestic abuse charges. Stocks closed down today at the end of a shortened trading week. The Dow dropped by 348 points. As NPR's David Gura reports, a stronger-than-expected jobs report reinforced fears about inflation. The U.S. economy added 390,000 jobs in May, more than Wall Street expected, while the unemployment rate held steady at 3.6 percent. It's a hot labor market, and that's great news for people looking for jobs, but the solid jobs report could make the Federal Reserve's fight against inflation harder. Right now, employers are struggling to find enough workers, and they're raising wages to recruit people, which can feed into inflation. Wall Street is worried higher inflation will force the Fed to raise interest rates more aggressively. All three indexes fell on Friday and posted losses for the week. David Gura, NPR News, New York. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The shooting deaths of four people at a Tulsa medical building this week are stirring fears for health care workers in Massachusetts. They're also bringing up painful memories at Brigham and Women's Hospital. That's where a man shot and killed a cardiac surgeon back in 2015. WBUR's Priyanka Dale-McCluskey has more. Nurse Trish Powers was on duty the day a gunman shot Dr. Michael Davidson. The man was apparently upset about his mother's surgery. Powers says the Tulsa shooting is just so horrible and upsetting and hits home for us. The Brigham has recently been the target of anti-vaccine threats and white supremacists. Workers like Powers are on edge. If someone really wants to do harm, they're going to do it. And I hope that we can find a way that we can feel safer for everyone. The hospital says it has improved security to keep patients and staff safe. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale-McCluskey. 
Advocates for stronger federal gun laws are taking their case for action to a Springfield gunmaker. Today, a group including Senator Ed Markey rallied outside a Smith & Wesson facility where AR-15 rifles are made. John Rosenthal with the group Stop Handgun Violence said the nation should adopt gun laws like Massachusetts. He says this state treats guns and cars alike with requirements for training and licensing. If every state simply treated guns like cars, like Massachusetts, and had the same low gun death rate as Massachusetts, 27,000 lives would be saved a year. Smith & Wesson has not responded to a WBUR request for comment. Massachusetts Democrats are kicking off their two-day convention in Worcester tonight. The event will determine which Democratic candidates get on the ballot, the primary ballot, in September for statewide offices. A candidate must win support of at least 15 percent of the delegates at the convention to appear on the ballot. Offices that are contested include governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, secretary of state, and state auditor. It sports the Red Sox are in California to take on the A's tonight. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight with a chance of some showers. The lows will be around 56 degrees. Cloudy early tomorrow, becoming mostly sunny. Chance of some showers in the late afternoon. The highs will be around 73 degrees. Sunshine on Sunday, the highs around 73. Monday should be mostly sunny. The highs around 72 degrees. Right now, it is 61 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, supporting the book Pregnant Girl, a story of teen motherhood, college, and creating a better future for young families. Written by Generation Hope founder Nicole Lynn Lewis. GenerationHope.org. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Well, after a long wait, COVID-19 vaccines could finally be available really soon for very young children. We're talking about kids under five years old. Dr. Ashish Jha, the White House COVID-19 response coordinator, delivered these words yesterday. We expect that vaccinations will begin in earnest as early as Tuesday, June 21st, and really roll on throughout that week. It is news that some parents around the country have been waiting for for what seems like forever. So we have brought Dr. Jaw back to the show to talk about this announcement and answer some questions about the vaccination plan going forward. Welcome. Thank you for having me back. Okay, so even though parents of this age group have been waiting so long for a vaccine, I want to ask you, if we look at the next age group up, that's 5 to 11-year-olds. Vaccination was authorized for them six months ago, and only about 30 percent of that age group is fully vaccinated. Do you have any reason to believe the vaccination rate will be any better for these younger children? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think we have to continue to do a, a better job of explaining why vaccines are such an important way of protecting children. Um, There's a lot of misinformation out there about kids and COVID. And, you know, we have to counter that. And we have to help parents understand that if you want to protect your children moving forward, vaccines represent the best way to do it. Right. But do you feel the administration has failed somewhat with the 5 to 11 age group in getting them vaccinated more fully? No, I think, look, the administration has made these vaccines widely available. I think we have worked with pediatricians and family practitioners And we've got to do more of that. We've got to keep going. Um, We've got to help parents understand that that uh, if in this pandemic, the pandemic is not over, the COVID is still out there. We're Mm -hmm. going to see other variants. 
And we want to protect children, and the best way to do it is through vaccines. And what is the plan, then, to improve the vaccination rate among not just 5 to 11-year-olds, but also among these younger kids as well? At the end of the day, you know, I'm a parent, and when I think about decisions I make for my kids, I am really guided and shaped by my pediatrician or my kid's pediatrician or family practitioner. So one important part of the plan certainly is to work with trusted medical providers. And the American Academy of Pediatrics has been very strong and very clear on this. Uh, I think getting more information out to pediatricians and family practitioners and helping them communicate directly to parents, I think will also make a really important difference. I am curious, though, do you see these lower vaccination rates among children as it's an issue of mistrust in the vaccines? Or is it more about parents making an informed, deliberate choice? Because data does show that these vaccines provide only modest protection for kids. What do you think the issue here is? I think there are a couple of things. One is from the beginning of this pandemic, we have seen a downplaying of COVID in kids, right? You've heard over and over again that somehow COVID is not a big deal. And the way that that has been set up is by saying it's less risky than it is for elderly people. Well, that's always true. Every disease is lower risk for children uh, than it is for the elderly. The real question is how does COVID compare to other risks children face? And COVID is a real challenge. And what we know is that the vaccines provide terrific protection against severe ailments for kids as well as adults. And I think we have to make that help parents understand that. And I think as we make that case, I think more parents will choose to get their kids vaccinated. Do you think the delay in making the vaccine available for these youngest kids has has affected the course of the pandemic in a significant way in this country? What do you think the impact has been? Well, it's certainly for the parents of kids under five. Um, it's been an incredibly frustrating period. And I have a lot of friends with kids under five. Uh, they have been, I think, frustrated by the delay. Um, but the, it isn't, the, the issue is that when you think about kids under five, you've got to get the right dosing. You can't just use an adult dose. Um, you know, obviously, these are smaller humans, and so we want to get the dosing right. You want to make sure that it's safe and effective in this population. And that has all taken time. And I think the companies have worked quickly. I think the FDA has worked quickly. Um, But at the end of the day, we've always wanted to get it right. We thought that was the most important thing. Right. Well, I want to talk about your job in particular, because, you know, in many ways, it feels like this to me. It feels like this to my friends, my colleagues, that people all over the U.S. are, are just sort of moving on right now, like either pretending the pandemic is over or simply deciding for themselves that the risk of infection is acceptable. And I'm wondering, does that shifting mindset now, does it make your job harder these days? Does it make it harder to get the message across from the White House that we still need to care about COVID? Well, the way I look at it is that the goal was always to make COVID less disruptive, to make COVID less harmful to the American people. And we've made an incredible amount of progress on that. So I think that's a good thing, by the way. So that's not a problem. That's a good thing. And the way we've done it is by making sure that, you know, that vaccines are widely available. Two thirds of Americans are now fully vaccinated. A third are boosted. We've done a lot to make treatments available. The fact that COVID creates less fear is a good thing. That's always been a goal. Now, we still have a messaging challenge, which is we have to help people understand that COVID is not over. Doesn't mean that it needs to rule our lives the way it did a year ago. 
but that we need to still take precautions, still make sure we have plenty of vaccines and treatments, continue to do the things that we know will protect Americans. That's still on the agenda. That is Dr. Ashish Jha, White House COVID-19 response coordinator. Thank you very much for joining us again today. Thank you for having me back. It has been 10 days since the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and while the entire nation is reeling, for a certain group of people it is hitting particularly hard. For Latinos, seeing the names, the photos of the victims, kids and teachers who look and sound like them, it's added a layer of grief and trauma. To talk through this, we have called Maria Maldonado Morales. She's a clinical social worker at Texas Children's Hospital. Hey there, welcome. Thank you so much. It goes without saying that there's a whole range of views and experiences uh, among Latinos across this country. So I guess start with just what you personally are hearing um, in your circles from your patients about how this particular shooting is affecting them. I'm seeing a lot of complicated grief. I think to your point, it's not only the loss of life, the loss of safety, but I think the community that we feel as sort of Latinos in the United States adds a layer of frustration, of sadness, of anger even. And my colleagues who are also Latino or my family who is also Latino, like you said, seeing the faces of the children and seeing your nieces and nephews, your kids. And I also see that with the clients that I see, I work with primarily Latino students. Mm -hmm. And many of them have said just that of these kids look like me, this could have been me or this could have been my my family or this could have been us. Yeah. This is not the first horrific shooting uh, to affect Latinos, uh, not Mm -hmm. even the first in Texas. So we Mm -hmm. we don't know the motive in Uvalde. We do know that um, El Paso back in 2019 was racially motivated. Um, Just to remind people, that was a gunman who walked into a Walmart and killed 23 people and was targeting Mexican-Americans. Does that add to the weight of this latest horror? Does it contribute to... I don't know, a a sense of a particular community under attack. I think it does. You know, I think especially to your point in this instance, because the the motive of the attack wasn't clear, I think that adds an additional layer of maybe uncertainty or fear because the shooter was also Latino. And so I think it adds this sort of almost level of mistrust of we're supposed to be a community, we're supposed to watch out for each other, and how can we hurt each other like this? So what advice are you giving to people who are who are grappling with this? Something that I've been telling people a lot is to have really honest, open conversations in, in many communities, but I think particularly in Latino communities, there is this maybe fear of having difficult emotional conversations because often parents don't want to seem weak or vulnerable in front of their children. Children don't want to seem weak or vulnerable in front of their parents. Everyone is trying to be strong and brave, but that sometimes brings in shame and guilt, and it can also create feelings of isolation. So I'm encouraging people to speak openly about their feelings, to share what they're feeling with each other, and have these open conversations because it is uncomfortable. It isn't easy to talk about, but we're all thinking about it. We're all feeling it. 
What about something that may speak um, to almost everyone in America right now, which is a craving for a sense of safety, a safe place? How do you talk to people about that? How do you talk to people about coping? I think something that I recommend to people, which obviously is easier said than done, is to try and create as much of a sense of normalcy in this very uncertain world. So how do you do that? That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, if you have family routines, for example, of having dinner together or reading a book before bedtime, um, and maybe also doing things that maybe seem um, fun, which also sounds odd because often when we feel so sad, we feel like, well, I shouldn't be enjoying things. I shouldn't have fun. I shouldn't experience joy. But we can hold both of those feelings together. We can feel scared and sad and also feel joy and hope. And I think that, again, allows a sense of normalcy in, in our day-to-day life. It's not going to take it away. It's not going to make it all you know, disappear. But for a second, we can feel a sense of normalcy. Good advice there from Maria Maldonado Morales, clinical social worker at Texas Children's Hospital. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered in a post-Roe world, how should Americans of childbearing age prepare for less access to legal abortion? That's just ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. In business news, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court has ruled that there are limits to the restrictions that municipalities can place on solar projects. The case involves a solar project in Lexington that needs an access road in Waltham. Waltham's building inspector claimed the road would violate the city's zoning code, limiting larger-scale solar projects to industrial zones. The state Supreme Court ruled that communities can reasonably, reasonably restrict solar systems, but limiting them to small portions of a town or a city violates state law that promotes solar energy. On Wall Street, stocks were lower. The Dow was down about 1% or 349 points at 32,900. Marketplace will be by in about 10 minutes with all the day's business news. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet, presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live now through Sunday. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight with a chance of showers. The lows will be around 56 degrees. Cloudy early tomorrow, becoming mostly sunny. Chance of some showers in the late afternoon. The highs will be around 73. Sunshine on Sunday. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
And I'm Elsa Chang. So what now? That's the question that's buzzing within reproductive health communities. In particular, how should those Americans of childbearing age prepare now if Roe is overturned by the Supreme Court? Well, joining us now are two people who have thought a lot about this. Robin Marty, who's the operations director for the West Alabama Women's Center and the author of Handbook for a Post-Roe America. And we have with us Dr. Reagan McDonald-Mosley. She's a practicing OBGYN and the CEO of Power to Decide, a sexual health and planning nonprofit group. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having me. Robin, I mean, you are in this state, like half of all U.S. states, that would make abortion illegal immediately. You're in Alabama. Can you just walk us through specifically what that would entail. So I want to explain really quickly that although half of the states are likely to have no access to legal abortion, there are very few states, even those with triggers, that will immediately be impacted by the ruling. A time period before something will go immediately into effect. For us, that's not the case. And that means that we have to be sure that if we have patients who are in for care, they will be in the waiting room. And we have to make sure that we have them in either beginning the dilation process or already taking their pills before a decision comes down, which for us would be at 9 a.m. We usually have our patients in at 8, but we're moving our patients in even earlier on any day that could potentially be a decision day just to make sure that we can care for as many as possible before we can't anymore. Well, I want to talk about what people should be thinking about and doing right now, because these abortion restrictions mean that some people are going to be looking for ways to make sure that they don't have an unintended pregnancy now. And Reagan, as a doctor, just tell us what kind of contraception would you recommend? And let me just sort of preface this also by saying I welcome any opportunity to talk about reproductive health and birth control. But I have to admit that the premise of this question, that abortion access will be so hard to obtain in over half the states in our country, that that just within and of itself feels very dystopian and troubling. There are definitely some methods that, you know, have lower failure rates and sort of, you know, the real world use. Um, so there is permanent birth control, both the tubal ligation as well as vasectomy, um, depending on someone's anatomy. So those are permanent methods that, that should only be used if someone knows that they don't want to have any more children. And those are more than 99% effective. There are also implants, contraceptive implants and IUDs, both hormonal and non-hormonal, that are also 99% effective. Um, but those methods might not be for everyone. So all of the other methods, you know, should be available to them, including the contraceptive pill, the patch, the ring, the injectable contraception, which are also still very effective, over 90% effective. But again, you know, it's a really great opportunity to sort of learn about all of these methods, the side effects, and then choose what, what method, you know, is right for you. And when it comes to emergency contraception, like Plan B or something like that, can we just remind people how long they have to take it for something like Plan B to still be effective? Emergency contraception, whether or not it's a pill or an intrauterine device, should be taken within five days of unprotected intercourse. And as you know, it can be hard to sort of get a provider visit and sure. get the pills and fill the prescription within five days. And so one thing to consider is advanced provision, 
before you need it, before you have unprotected intercourse, just to have it in your medicine yeah. cabinet. Okay, I have been hearing recommendations about stocking up on Plan B or other emergency contraception, but you do think that that's a good thing to do? Like, is there anything people need to know in terms of shelf life or expiration? So there are two different types of the pill version of emergency contraception. One, you just mentioned, people sort of often refer to as Plan B. It's available over the counter, so folks can just go into the drugstore today and pick up a couple of packs if they want. And it generally has a very long shelf life in the order of three to four years, meaning Ah. someone could buy it now and may not have to use it for a year and it's still active and good. But you should look at the expiration date on the specific box of the product that you're going to buy, meaning, Mm -hmm. you know, if a product's going to expire next month, you want to choose one that's on the box is going to expire in a year or two. Let's say someone takes a pregnancy test in a state that does ban abortion and that test comes out positive. Let's talk about this scenario now. So Robin, what options do these people have if they want to end their pregnancy in that state? So there are a number of different options that a person can undergo. Um, Some of them involve trying to decide to go to a clinic outside of their state. There are abortion funds and practical support groups that can help provide financial assistance, um, logistical support. But also what we're seeing is that most people especially in the South, they have an immense amount of difficulty to be able to afford all of the bus tickets, plane tickets, times off of work. Um, That's simply not going to be doable for a lot of them. Yeah. Well, Reagan, from an OBGYN's perspective, if I am looking for a clinic where I live or near where I live, maybe even in a neighboring state, what should I be looking for? So the first thing is, you know, to identify where you can go. Um, and so we have a resource at Power to Decide called abortionfinder.org. There's another resource called I Need an A. And these um, have databases of reliable abortion clinics throughout the country. I agree with everything Reagan said. I would also like to say that reaching out to a local independent abortion clinic just to ask questions is definitely a thing that can be done. Abortion clinics are always going to be aware of what's going on in their region. And as much as online sources are amazing, they are so hard to keep to the minute up to date. And so, I mean, if you have a question, just ask. That's what we're here for. And Robin, I mean, we are hearing that in many states that would ban abortion. They are more interested in punishing providers rather than the patients seeking abortions. So how honest or direct should a patient be when talking to a doctor about the option of an abortion or treatment after they have tried an abortion? Right. I actually put together a checklist of questions that people can ask their doctors. So it's a checklist that a person can go through and say, how do you feel about abortion? If I asked for an abortion, would you make a referral? It's an entire list of things that, frankly, doctors have to be vetted for at this point because there are states where you cannot sue a doctor if they withhold information from you about your pregnancy. So we've already seen how abortion laws have completely undermined the doctor-patient relationship. And that's only going to get worse once it's doctors and patients who could potentially end up in jail. Elsa, this is Reagan. I just wanted to chime in from a medical perspective and point out, realizing that someone may not have the opportunity to fully vet a provider, it's important to realize that if someone is having you know, a prolonged bleeding or may need medical attention after having a medication abortion with medications that they obtained themselves or with the care of a provider, that that very much looks like a miscarriage, right? And so someone can 
potentially, you know, present to an emergency room and to their provider and say, I'm having cramping and bleeding and, and I had a positive pregnancy test and receive the care that they need without having to reveal that they have taken abortion medications. That was Dr. Reagan McDonald-Mosley. She is a practicing OBGYN and the CEO of Power to Decide, a sexual health and planning nonprofit. We also had Robin Marty. She's the operations director of the West Alabama Women's Center, and she is the author of Handbook for a Post-Row America. Thank you both so much for spending all this time with us. Of course, anytime. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 60 degrees in Boston at 629. Coming up next at 630, it's Marketplace. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight with a chance of showers. The lows will be around 56 degrees. Cloudy early tomorrow, becoming mostly sunny. Chance of showers in the late afternoon. The highs will be around 73 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bicon Dental Implants, offering patients a same-day solution for missing teeth, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures, 617-524-3900. And Empire Loan, with eight New England locations, recognizing Boston Explorers, whose mission provides children ages 7 to 15 the opportunity to explore Boston in an electronic-free setting and learn lifelong skills, committed to ensuring all children have full and equal access to Boston. bostonexplorers.org.